I'm Cameron Silsby, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part 46 in the series, The Gospel of Matthew. The strange but simple parables Jesus spoke often showed his concern for how his disciples thought of something called the kingdom of heaven. For the modern disciples of Jesus, our culture often shapes our ideas of what the kingdom of heaven is like, and yet it's our task to allow the parables Jesus teaches to shape our expectations and understanding. Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. Let me just pray really fast uh, over us tonight. Spirit, we want to hear from you um, through the scriptures. Would you just help our minds to be focused, to slow down our hearts and minds so that we can hear from you. Um, and Jesus, we just, we want you um, just to be made known tonight in your kingdom in beautiful ways. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. All right, so last week, uh, Josh worked through the first part of chapter 13, introducing this interesting way of teaching Jesus, um, this interesting way Jesus taught uh, called parables. Uh, Last week, we covered a parable called the parable of the soils, and it used the imagery of someone throwing seeds and the seeds landing in four different kinds of soils, hence why it's called the parable of the soils. In the first soil, the seed was snatched up by the birds, if you remember. Um, In the second, the seed uh, fell and was scorched by the sun. In the third, the seed fell and was choked by weeds. And then finally, the fourth uh, took root and bore fruit. And Jesus' disciples asked him about the parable, and Jesus explained what it meant, but also why he was speaking in parables. And just as a refresher from last week, one scholar defines a parable as this, an utterance which does not carry its meaning on the surface and which thus demands thought and perception if the hearer is to benefit from it. Learning from and responding to a parable is not a matter of simply reading off the meaning from the words, but of entering into an interactive process to which the hearer must contribute if true understanding is to result. It's important to keep in mind that there is an interpretation of the parable, you know, what what truth Jesus is trying to teach, um, but then also an implication how that truth plays out in a given situation. For us to draw understanding, we have to do both of these acts. So the first part of tonight, we'll work through the interpretation of six parables. Yes, I said six. We got it. We can do this, all right? And then the implications of what they teach us about something called the kingdom of heaven. If you're newer to following Jesus, a simple definition of the kingdom of heaven is the space where Jesus' rule and authority is experienced and realized. But there's a tension because while the kingdom of heaven is breaking into our reality, uh, which Jesus began, it won't fully be present until Jesus returns as victorious king. Once a person entrusts their life to Jesus as Lord, they become citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And with that citizenship comes the responsibility to help usher in the reality of the kingdom of heaven in bits and pieces in the here and now. So a really fair question is, what does the kingdom of heaven look like when we encounter it? How does the rule and authority of Jesus operate? Is it when we get a promotion or get to go on a really nice vacation? 
Is it when bombs are dropped and terrorists are killed? Is it when a certain political candidate gets elected or not elected? And those uh, you know, sorts of questions are a bit on the nose, I get it. But it's incredibly easy for us as followers of Jesus to allow our understanding of what the kingdom of heaven looks like by how our culture defines the good life and justice. The work we have for tonight is to dive into what Jesus has to say about the kingdom of heaven and to figure out what he says the kingdom looks like in order to adjust our expectations on what it means to be a citizen and participate in that kingdom. So you guys ready? We're going for it, all right? So um, as we pick up the story in Matthew chapter 13, we'll see that at least initially Jesus is teaching the crowds um, these parables. So that's just something for, helpful for us to keep in mind. So let's dive into the first parable. Look down at verse 24 in your Bibles, Matthew chapter 13, verse 24, and we'll get going. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow a good seed in your field? Uh, where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling up the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first, collect the weeds and tie them up in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. If you remember, you know, last week, the parable of the soils, you know, Jesus was using agrarian imagery of seeds and wheat, and so he does so again. And it's kind of debatable, but I think it's fine to think of this parable as a sort of sequel to the parable from last week in kind of a general sense, although, you know, some of the imagery will be tweaked in some cases. But it's kind of like a continua continuation of what happens to the, to the seeds that land in the soil and bear fruit, we're not going to parse out its interpretation right now because Jesus is going to do this for us in just a little bit, but for now, it's helpful for us to understand a few things about the agrarian life of first century Jews that would have been obvious to them but is much less so to us. For instance, it's helpful for us to understand that these weeds are something specific. Um, they're called a darnel and have been known throughout history as an especially nefarious weed. Uh, they're more than an inconvenience. They're actually dangerous. In small enough quantities, they can cause people to essentially become like inebriated or high, but if ingested in large enough quantities, it can actually kill someone. So one of the tricky things with Darnell is that it looks similar to wheat in its early stages, and it's when the wheat and the Darnell sprout and form their respective heads that they become distinguishable. But by this time, their roots would have been grown together. And interestingly, uh, at least I found interesting, this act of revenge of an enemy like sowing weeds into uh, the enemy's field wasn't unheard of. In fact, Roman authorities had laws to deal with those sorts of specific cases. So apparently it was a thing back in the day. Now notice uh, the master's response when the servants question him about the weeds. He pointedly blames an enemy for the weeds. In fact, the Greek has an emphasis on the word this. It's as if the master, um, looking at the weeds growing amongst his wheat, points at the weeds and says, this an enemy did. And so with all that in our back pockets now, uh, we'll just leave this parable and let Jesus explain it to us in a bit. Let's move on to the next two parables he tells. So look down at verse 31 with me. 
He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. So we're going to tackle these two together because Jesus tells them to make kind of the same point. Uh, once again, we'll need some things explained to us that would have been obvious to uh, first century Jews listening to Jesus. So I'm guessing that most of us don't have a ton of experience with mustard seeds. Mustard, yes, I mean sandwiches, hot dogs, whatever, but, but the seeds, probably not. So it's helpful for us to know that uh, mustard seeds are like tiny, and one estimate says that it takes about 700 of them to weigh a gram. Um, they're tiny, and because of that, the expectation of what a mustard seed could produce you know, uh, with a plant is, is low. With a tiny seed would come a tiny plant, so you think. But an average size of a mustard bush is anywhere between six and nine feet tall. And the obvious point is that something tiny can produce something so large. For the dough, I think we can all understand that 60 pounds of dough is a lot. Uh, probably would produce enough bread to feed a small village, literally. Uh, but something interesting, though, happens that we miss out on in a lot of the English translations. Um, the exact wording of the woman and the yeast is that she hid it in the dough. Now, it could just be an idiom, you know, a way of saying that she mixed it in. But most commentators think that the wording of hid uh, specifically emphasizes the point of these two parables. In comparison, you know, it only takes a small amount of yeast to work all throughout the dough. It's a picture of the woman hiding the small amount of yeast inside this massive amount of dough and yet was able to mix the yeast thoroughly throughout it. And the point is that the kingdom of heaven by nature is something that doesn't make headline news. It operates quietly, sometimes barely noticed, but it eventually works its way to be seen by all affecting all, which is uh, quite a claim. You know, the smallness, sure, Jesus at this point is just an itinerant rabbi with a fluctuating following, primarily composed of the Jews who were a conquered people group in the backwaters of the Roman Empire. You know, his followers were expecting Jesus to be a grandiose general leading the Jewish people to victory after victory over the Roman oppressors, winning their freedom, and becoming king of the world. Jesus, on the other hand, is preparing them for smallness and relative insignificance. And we have now like 2,000 years of history to look back on and say, see, Jesus was right. You know, something small became something large. And in many ways, yes, that's true. But if we think Jesus is just making a prediction about the future here, we miss something important. The way of the kingdom of heaven is smallness and insignificance. And with enough patience, it leads to something surprising and pervasive. The triumphalism of the Western world in which Christianity has been a fundamental influence to is completely at odds with this parable. Western history is uh, at best a mixed bag, and, and we can easily point to things like the Crusades and the Inquisitions and imperialism and evangelism being used in tandem and on and on as examples of things that don't look like a mustard seed or as subtle as yeast being worked through dough. Jesus is shaping expectations for his followers. With the kingdom of heaven, don't expect domination and power over people like Rome. Rome. 
expect smallness, subtlety, all of which requires patience in order to see its outworking. Now, Matthew uh, adds this editorial note in verses 34 and 35. He says, Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. Matthew is reaching back into the story of Israel in order to explain what's happening in these parables. Jesus is teaching and revealing truths about the nature of the kingdom of heaven that were unknown to his audience and that had been longed for by Jews for generations. It's as if Matthew is saying, for all your answers about the kingdom of heaven, just come to Jesus. That simple. And right after this, we have an important scene shift. So look down at verse 36. Then he, that is Jesus, left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. So Jesus goes from speaking to the crowds and his disciples to just his disciples. And this provides an opportunity to uh, explain to them one of the parables. And it seems like Matthew is making a statement along the lines of, you know, the crowds can hear Jesus speak but his true disciples have access to him personally and, and the chance for explanation and understanding. And remember the first parable with the Darnell and the enemy sowing it in the wheat. Jesus now answers their request by explaining the parable. Look down with me at verse 37. He answered, who, uh, the one who sowed the, the good seed is the son of man, which is who? Jesus, yep. A solid answer. Uh, the field is the world, and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Okay, so a lot going on there. Um, Jesus breaks down kind of each player in the parable, although um, not every detail is covered, such as, you know, were the servants being unfaithful by sleeping while the enemy planted the seed? And, you know, I guess it could be something important, but kind of when you read parables, you don't want to read into every single detail, especially when the details aren't explained by Jesus. And he doesn't explain the sleeping part. He just kind of leaves it at that. So I don't think it's an important detail to the point of the parable. But I think the point of Jesus's parable is this, be patient amongst evil and evil people because there is a coming day of justice. And you might be thinking, hold on, so is, is Jesus teaching us to not care about evil and injustice and to just passively wait for him to come back? And I can see how you can get that, and it's honestly an idea that has subtly paralyzed uh, some of the church into inaction in the face of evil. Because, I mean, you know, Jesus is going to sort all of that out anyway, and we're just supposed to wait for him to do, uh, to do all that and just do what wheat does, which is, I don't know, sway in the breeze or something like that. I'm not sure. But uh, to, the counter to that line of thinking is found in verse 43. And then the righteous will shine in the kingdom. Um, you know, that word righteous comes from the Greek word dikaios, someone who is dikaios, a righteous one, fulfills God's law. 
And what does Jesus say is the twofold, twofold fulfillment of God's law? Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. The one who, who is righteous lives that out, which means they respond to evil and injustice happening to those around them, but the means by which they do matters and is in fact what Jesus is in part speaking about. For Jesus, it's important that the citizens of his kingdom understand their role. It is not their job uh, to violently destroy evil things and evil people. Jesus is the judge. He'll be able to wisely, fairly, and completely destroy evil. If we try, we'll just end up destroying both wheat and weeds. One commentator pointed out that it seems like the enemy is trying to bait the master's servants into pulling up the weeds in order to pull up some of the wheat as well. It seems like the enemy is kind of incapable of pulling up the wheat himself, so why not convince the master's own servants to do it for him? And so Jesus warns against trying to do so. Instead, in the words of Paul, we overcome evil with good. Our attitude as we find ourselves surrounded by the work of the enemy is patience and trust that Jesus will ultimately put everything right. Theologian N.T. Wright describes our situation like this. We wait with patience, not like people in a dark room, wondering if anyone will ever come with a lighted candle, but like people in early morning who know that the sun has arisen and are now waiting for the full brightness of midday. Justice will come. Evil will be destroyed. We are to be working to fulfill God's two-part law while remaining patient and trusting Jesus to put the world to rights. Okay, so we've worked through three parables here and have three more to go, but I think these will go fairly fast. So just uh, do me a favor, just take a deep breath in and breathe it out and oxygenate your brain and, and stick with me and, and we'll tie this all together in just a little bit. Um, look down with me at verse 44 and we'll tackle two more parables in one shot. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Who doesn't like a good buried treasure story? Um, I grew up as a, ki as a kid that was uh, pretty poor in a, like a poor neighborhood, and one of the things my friends and I would talk about and kind of dream about uh, was finding buried treasure. Um, so we'd risk the wrath of, of our parents and start digging holes in our yards looking for buried treasure. And, you know, with every dig of the shovel, we hoped to hear the thud of hitting a treasure chest, even though we were like 100 or so miles from the coast. But, you know, you never know. Um, if we didn't find treasure, our backup options were to find diamonds and gems, because in our minds, that's where they came from from the dirt, um, or dinosaur bones were uh, also acceptable, or Native American arrowheads, since all of those we assumed were worth lots of money. Um, and honestly, we never did find any buried treasure or anything for that matter. In fact, our searches generally just evolved into all of us digging in the same hole trying to reach China, because why not? We were kids. I mean, I was 25. What do you expect? I'm joking. <laughs> I was like 10. Uh, but, but treasure captures our imagination. For Jesus, he uses these vivid images of treasure or a pearl for a pearl merchant as symbolic of the kingdom. 
the thrill of an unexpected discovery, the joy of you know, hitting the jackpot. But for Jesus, it isn't that finding the kingdom of heaven brings joy and excitement. It isn't just that the kingdom of heaven uh, brings joy and excitement. It's also that it costs everything to get. But it's worth it. I mean, you get more than you give up. For the man buying the field, it's a no-brainer of an investment. For the pearl merchant, it's the pinnacle of what he's been searching for. He's not just found a pearl. He has found the pearl. Of course, sell all the other pearls, sell everything he has, however impractical that sounds. This is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. This is the response for the seed that fell on good soil from the parable from last week, or for the wheat in the master's field, or for the disciples as opposed to the crowds. Go all in and joyfully so. But this isn't about somehow earning a place in the kingdom or buying, you know, a place in the kingdom. This points to the reality that in order to be in the kingdom, you have to pledge your allegiance to King Jesus, which means he has the ultimate authority over you and everything you possess. You can't keep some of it for yourself and still be in the kingdom. And honestly, why would you? The kingdom is the thing you've been looking for. You have found the buried treasure. The kingdom costs everything, but it's well worth it. Jesus has one more parable about the kingdom of heaven. Look down with me at verse 47. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the lake shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all of these things? Jesus asked. Yes, they replied. This parable sounds a little bit familiar, right? Uh, new imagery, but it sounds like Jesus is repeating a theme from the parable of the wheat and the weeds. And I think he is in some ways, but emphasizing something different. There's wicked and righteous and fire again, but no enemy this time, just a sort of matter of fact, hey, this is what's going to happen. And there's something uh, kind of interesting in the Greek happening here that I think helps draw out this emphasis. In verse 49, when it says that the angels will separate the wicked from the righteous, it is literally that they will separate the wicked from the middle of the righteous. Meaning there's like a mingling and a mixed bag sort of motif going on. And, and realize this. Remember, it seems like Jesus is still only talking to his disciples. The parable of the wheat and the weeds, the crowds were around for that one. This one is only for his disciples, and I think it's directed towards his disciples. Whereas the wheat and the weeds is about patience and trust in God's justice, this one is more like a warning to the disciples themselves. Just being among followers of Jesus, just being associated with other followers of Jesus doesn't make you a good fish. There will be a separation. And I think this parable is for, you know, the disciples, which means it's, it's for us as well. Association and hanging around doesn't count. What counts is whether you are a dikaios, remember, or a righteous one, working to live out the law of, of, of love for God and love for neighbor. And, and the image of fire and judgment can be really troubling for us. And, and honestly, it's been abused and spoken of in ways that are not in line with the way of Jesus. 
but we can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Theologian N.T. Wright says it well when he says this. There certainly are caricatures of God and His judgment which we should avoid like the plague. God is not a sadistic monster who would happily consign most of His beloved, image-bearing creatures to eternal fire. But there are equal and opposite caricatures which we should be aware of. God is not an indulgent grandparent determined to spoil the youngsters rotten by letting them do whatever they like and still giving them sweets at the end of the day. We must refuse the second just as firmly as the first. Jesus is trying to warn his disciples, you know, getting revealed as being wicked does not end up well. You don't want that end. It's not a happy ending. And the disciples say they understand, they say they get it, and I think they do at this point as much as they can, Uh, but a a lot more will be revealed to them. A a lot more dots will be connected. A concrete outworking of these parables will be experienced, which leads to verse 52. Jesus said to them, therefore, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. This seems to be kind of Matthew's wink and nod to himself and what he's up to in in his biography of Jesus. He's tying Jesus' life and words to the story and the hopes of Israel for God's Messiah. But he's also looking back on what Jesus taught, not reinterpreting the truth Jesus was trying to communicate about the kingdom, but revisiting the parables for new implications for himself and the followers of Jesus who would read this, which means for us as well. So to end tonight, we're going to draw out some implications from these parables. Um, Matthew is really smart, I I think, to add. It was almost like he was led by God's Spirit to write it. Um, uh, To add that Jesus is asking the disciples if they understand, because it's as if Jesus is asking us if we understand. And when we've done the work to understand the interpretation of these parables, we can say, yeah. Um, But then we are encouraged to draw out the new and the old. It's as if Jesus is saying, sure, you know what I was saying about the kingdom of heaven. But each time you read these, you ought to draw out implications for yourself. And we need to realize that this is kind of a hard thing to do. Not obviously impossible, but definitely hard. Uh, We all have ways we've been shaped by our culture to expect or want the kingdom of heaven to operate in certain ways. And those expectations and desires shape how we live our lives. For some of you, uh, you need to confront the fact that Jesus has made it clear in the parable of the wheat and the weeds that it's not our role to destroy evil people. So whether you vote for a political party based on who will drop bombs on enemies or you partake in the mob justice on Twitter, publicly destroying people's lives, this is not what the kingdom of heaven looks like. In fact, you're doing what the enemy couldn't do. He can only sow weeds. We're the ones that can actually uproot the wheat. And for others of us, uh, we need to confront the fact that our culture's false dichotomy of we either destroy evil or do nothing at all isn't how the kingdom operates. In the parable of the wheat and the weeds, the righteous are the ones that will shine like the kingdom. Uh, Those who do the hard, quiet work of overcoming evil with good, um, will it fix the foster care system if you adopt one kid out of it? No. But that certainly doesn't mean it's pointless. Ask the child you adopt, who is loved and cherished by the king of the universe, whether it was pointless to give them a family that is safe and secure and who loves them. 
And maybe we have a sort of fatalism and an attitude that says either we start a movement that eradicates some evil or it's not worth doing anything at all because our culture loves grandiose movements that can be praised, written about, and photographed. And yet, according to Jesus, when the kingdom is making an impact, it's often going unnoticed like a tiny mustard seed growing or yeast quietly working its way through dough. We have been trained to value things based on the number of likes posting a photo of it gets. But so much of the kingdom at work doesn't translate to photo, at at least not well, nor should it. How do you capture in, in a photo a marriage on the brink of ending being healed over months of hard work and prayer? Or staying out late one night to help your neighbor fix their only car so that they can make it into work the next morning? Or the growth in your life as you become less anxious and more trusting in God's goodness and care for you. That looks like the kingdom of heaven breaking into reality in tangible ways, but that won't make headlines, and it won't earn you the envy of strangers on social media. And to be frank, um, I think this desire to be noticed and to receive accolades from others is at the heart of what is like the millennial generation prosperity gospel which kind of comes as the entitlement to owning an attractive house with a job that allows you to travel to exotic or interesting places with just the right amount of kids dressed in really trendy, interesting clothes with enough free time to binge whatever you want on Netflix while eating takeout. Having all of this with good lighting to ensure you can take countless pictures of it and garner the admiration and envy of random strangers who follow you on social media. This is the good life in our culture for our generation. This is what shapes our generation's imagination of what the kingdom of heaven looks like in our lives. But I think for Jesus, the kingdom of heaven is like finding buried treasure. Everything else pales in comparison and in fact is worth giving up. It's not that you will never own a home or go on a nice vacation, but we also aren't entitled to those things. We have to be willing to live a life that is unspectacular and below average by our culture's standards. You can't serve two masters. You can't claim allegiance to Jesus, but shape all of your life around chasing the millennial prosperity gospel. Because what we do matters. And that can be kind of a scary thing, especially if our lives don't add up to what we say we believe. But it should also be encouraging as well because the very hiddenness of the kingdom at work as you participate in it with little to no acknowledgement or fanfare day in and day out is actually what matters and has eternal significance. Your vacation is nice, but ultimately it isn't the kind of thing that will define you. It's a real privilege to own a home, especially one that's comfortable, but it's not worth forsaking the kingdom to try and obtain one. Because in the end, we will be judged, not just by what we believe, but by what we've said and done as well. And if your allegiance is to King Jesus and you've worked with him in your life to live that allegiance out imperfectly, sure, but going for it nonetheless, then Jesus is faithful to say, you're mine. If you've learned to say all the right things and associate with the right people while allowing yourself or something else to be your king, then Jesus' words are a warning for you. 
You're giving up something far greater to obtain, obtain something far lesser. And it will not be a happy ending. But please understand, this is absolutely not the ending Jesus wants for you. He gives you this warning as a chance for you to turn from the way you have been going and towards him. Have you understood all these things? Jesus asked his disciples and, and asks us. It's an opportunity for us all to reflect and to draw new and old out of these parables and to respond appropriately. So we're going to take just a few moments to listen to God's Spirit. Thanks for listening to Van City Church. You can connect with us, find more teachings and resources from Van City at vancity.church. You can support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.